and I am excited to be a part of the Women in the Word teaching team and to be able to share with you this morning. I think that one of the things that I'm most excited about is just even the title of the lessons that we're doing for this semester, Walking with Jesus, the lessons that he taught along the way, because I get this visual picture um, about me walking through my day, whether I'm at the grocery store or taking the kids to school or whatever it is that I'm doing, and Jesus right there next to me, just like he was that we see throughout the Gospels, of him walking right alongside people and teaching just through everyday life. And so for me to be able to get that visual image, just it's encouragement to me. Today our lesson is on relationships, and I think that's something that is talk about everyday life. We all are a part of relationships. Some of those relationships are hard. Some of those relationships drain us, and um, it's just a burden for us to even feel like we have to pursue that relationship. Other relationships are really good, and we feel alive as a result of being around different people. They energize us, and they're just very special to us. In your homework this week, you were to think about one relationship that you had that made you feel special. And the, the person that came to mind for me was my grandfather. He um, was a man who had made many choices in his life that were not good choices. And they put a wedge between himself and the rest of our family. He and my grandmother divorced when my mom was in high school. Um, but we still, growing up, I would go, my mom would take us to go see him in his little efficiency apartment. He, um, it was, you know, the kind where the kitchen is in the same room with the, the living room, and there's one bedroom and a small bathroom. And Anyway, we would go and visit him, and what made it so special for me was, I have no idea what we talked about. I don't remember any of that. But he had this stool, and this stool was my place where I got to sit. It was this horrible green vinyl, sticky, nasty covering from very 70s, 60s, 70s kind of thing. And when you sat on it, it wobbled because the wooden legs underneath it weren't quite big enough to hold the weight of whoever was sitting on there. But to me, it was this seat of honor that he put it right at the, right at the foot of his chair where he sat. And nobody sat in that stool except for me. Well, as an adult looking back at that, probably the reason why nobody sat there was because there was no room. There was a very small couch in the chair where he sat. My brother and my parents sat on the couch. And so I was probably the youngest delegated to the stool. But in my mind, it was the place of honor. And when he died, when I was about seven or eight years old, he actually left me his stool in his will. And um, my mom has covered it over and over um, so that it was in my room when I was in high school. It used to be purple. It used to be blue striped. It used to have flowers on it. It's been covered several times, and now it sits in my closet. And um, I don't use it for any other reason except to be reminded about how special I felt and what a seat of honor I had. You know, I think as kids, so many times we are just affected deeply. You know, the things that you experienced as a child sometimes just sticks with you. And they have a way, children have a way of cutting straight to the heart when they explain a situation. And so because of that, I love the children's quotes that you can always find on different subjects. And so I found some quotes 
on what children would say about relationships. The first one is Billy, age four, and he said, when someone loves you, the way that they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Isn't that neat? Chrissy, age six, says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs back. Love is when mama gives daddy the best piece of chicken. And then Marianne, age four, says, love is when your puppy licks your face even when you've left him alone all day long. I think the best one, though, was from a contest where they were trying to find the most caring child. And this little boy, who was age four, won the contest. And the situation was that he and his mother lived next door to an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. So the little boy and the mother were, were sitting outside, and they saw that this elderly gentleman, recent widower, was sitting on his front porch and was crying. And so the little boy walked over into the yard next door and climbed up into the lap of his neighbor. And when he came back about 10 or 15 minutes later, his mother said, well, what did you say to him? And the little boy responded, I didn't say anything. I just helped him cry. I think that's what we need sometimes. We need somebody who's willing to just sit with us and help us cry. Our whole her lesson today is on relationships and the bottom line of what I felt with my grandfather, what these children were expressing with their words, is love. The bottom line of what Jesus taught on relationship is love. The question is, what do you love? Turn with me to Matthew 22. Chapter 22, verse 34. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. 22, verse 34. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's the first gospel. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples that um, Jesus walked through life with, teaching lessons along the way. What we see here, the setting or the background of what's going on in these verses, Matthew 22, 34, is that Jesus is addressing a large crowd of people. In this large crowd of people are Jews, non-Jews, Pharisees, and Sadducees. Now, some of you may have been very familiar with hearing of Pharisees and Sadducees, but just a, a brief reminder of who these men were is that they were both political and religious leaders. They, the power that they had and the rule that they had over the Jewish nation was from 150 B.C. all the way through 70 A.D., so well before Jesus walked on earth and well after he went to heaven. Their belief system was very conservative, both Pharisees and the Sadducees. They adhered to the law of Moses. What was given from God, revealed to Moses and recorded in the law. Now the Sadducees, the difference between the two, the Sadducees were very strict and conservative. There was no deviation. You took the law exactly as it was stated. Whereas the Pharisees felt that they had the right to be able to interpret the law, and they added to the law how the Jews could live out the law in their everyday life. 
So rather than just saying, do this, as the law said, they said, well, the way to really best do that and to best please God is to do this and this and this and this. A lot of what we do sometimes in our life, we judge others and we say, really the best way to please God, and we add to. Anyway, this is the setting. Jesus was addressing the people, and the Sadducees had, were asking him questions. They were trying to trip Jesus up or to test him publicly because what Jesus was doing, he had come to not just teach the law, but to introduce the concept of love and grace that he was offering to everyone. And the Sadducees were threatened by this. The Pharisees were threatened by this. And so they wanted to publicly discredit him. So they were asking him questions, waiting for Jesus to respond. But the way that Jesus spoke was with such authority and such truth that the Sadducees were silenced. And that's where we pick up in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So we see here, thir verse 34, the Sadducees had been silenced. And now the Pharisees who were there, they got together and they thought, well, surely we can come up with something to be able to test him. And so one man stood up, an expert in the law or a lawyer, stood up and had this question to test Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus' reply, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 6.5. You can see it there on your verse sheet, the first one. It's the exact same thing. And this Deuteronomy 6.5 is part of a central prayer for the Jewish people called the Shema. The Shema was the foundation of the beliefs of the Jewish people. And this prayer was so familiar to them, many of them recited it in the morning and in the evening. It was very similar to us having John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. As Christians, that verse so many times is the core of what we believe. Maybe it's the first verse we memorize or we have our children memorize. And so God's, Jesus' response to the Pharisee saying that this is the greatest commandment would have easily been accepted. There would have been no question. So let's stop there for a moment. And our first on your outline, the first greatest relationship that Jesus taught on is with God. So as we consider this being the first and greatest relationship that we can have, we have to ask ourselves a couple of questions. And the first one is, do you have a relationship with God? God is perfect. God, the creator of the universe, is perfect and holy. And we, as men, as a result of Adam, as a result of the fall of man, we sin, every single one of us. Scripture tells us that none of us are immune. And so God in his perfection and us in our sin... We cannot have a relationship because God can't be tainted by our sin. There's this great chasm between us. 
But God, in his infinite love and wisdom, provided a way to have a relationship through Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 on your verse sheet. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He made a way because what we deserved was death. The consequences of our sin, the wages of sin is death. But God gave us the perfect sacrifice in his son Jesus Christ. And Jesus willingly died on the cross for us so that we could be reconciled with God the Father. And he didn't just die on the cross. He was buried, and on the third day he rose from the dead, Easter morning. And now he's in heaven preparing a place for us, for those of us who believe. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. First, we just have to acknowledge that we sin. And we have to ask Jesus to forgive us for our sin. We trust in the sacrifice, perfect sacrifice of Jesus. So as you ask that question, do you have a relationship with God? If your answer is no, then my prayer for you today is that you would listen to the rest of this lesson and you would consider the most important relationship that you can ever have is with God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. And please come down if today is the day that you are going to make that decision to have a relationship with him. Come down and talk to me or any of the women who stay after to pray with you. If your answer was yes, you do have a relationship with God, well, then you have a follow-up question. And that follow-up question is, is, they, is he the most important relationship that you have in your life? And that can be a hard question to answer. Because what, did, what was the words that Jesus used? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Mind and strength can be interchangeable in the way that they are um, translated. It's basically the essence of who you are. At the very core of your being, do you love God in that way? So when you wake up in the morning, when you're hungry and you're eating breakfast, when you're driving your kids to school or you're trying to get through the traffic to get to work, are you loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with your money, with your decisions? Because if that's the greatest relationship that we can have, it's going to influence how we live our everyday life. And that's why God put it first, why Jesus responded first, that's the greatest relationship. And then he said the second greatest relationship is with others. Our second greatest relationship is with others. In verse 39, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, again, when Jesus is responding to the Pharisee, he's quoting directly from the law of Moses. Look on your verse sheet, Leviticus 19:18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, Jesus knows that the Pharisees and the Sadducees adhere strictly to the law, and so he's going to respond to them with truth that everybody listening is going to accept. So the assumption in Matthew 22:39 is that we love ourselves. Well, I think there's 
a lot of pop psychologists today that would try to convince us that we need to spend more time loving ourselves. We need to spend more time with ourselves so that we can better love us. Well, the assumption in Scripture, and so I would have to tend to agree with that, is that we already love ourselves. We may not like ourselves sometimes. We may even be engaged in self-destructive behavior. But if you're standing there with your hand over a fire, the only reason you don't pull it away is because you choose not to. The core of who we are, we love ourselves. And so, if we love ourselves and that's the assumption, then the command is that we are to love our neighbors. Loving God first and loving our neighbor second are interconnected. We can't love our neighbor without first loving God. Look on your verse sheet at 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet he hates his brother, he is a liar. But anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if we're truly going to love God with all of our hearts, with all of our everything, we're also going to love our brother. We can't help but love our brother because that's a reflection of our love for God. Now on your outline, I tried to be so nice, and when I, when I put it on my printer, it was very nice and clear. It just brought focus to the box. On your outline, you can barely read the words, which is sad because this is the core of this lesson. So let me make sure I'm saying this very clearly to you. A loving relationship with others flows out of a loving relationship with God. Our loving relationship with others is going to come from, flows out of our loving relationship with God. Now let's turn over into Luke. Luke chapter 10. It's just two books over. Chapter 10, verse 25. Here we get to see in Luke the same account of what happened in Matthew. And I love that God cares enough about us to give us different perspectives on the same thing that happened. We get a little bit of a different flavor, but we, together we get to be able to see the, the complete picture of what God was trying to tell us. In Matthew, we get the background. We get to know who, what he was talking about and the context of who he was speaking to. In Luke, we get to see what happens after. And so together we get a more perfect picture. I'm going to start reading in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Verse 29 says, But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now we've already seen and, and talked about in your small groups about the heart of this lawyer. That it wasn't, he wasn't asking the question, Well, who is my neighbor? Because I really want, Lord, to be able to love my neighbor. That's a great question for all of us to ask. As we read this and we think, Lord, who is it? Is it actually my neighbor? Is it the person that I go shopping with? Is it my kid's teacher? Is it the person I work with? Is it the homeless person on the street? Who is my neighbor? 
Well, of course, Jesus would answer everyone. Anybody that you come in contact is your neighbor. But remember what the purpose of the Pharisee was here. He wanted to trip Jesus up. He wanted to be able to get him to say something publicly that would discredit him. So he chose to ask, who is my neighbor? Look back on your verse sheet at Leviticus 19.18, the direct quote there. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. See, this law, the law of Moses, was written for the Jewish people to the Jewish people and how they responded to one another. And what Jesus had already been accused of by the Pharisees was eating with sinners, being friends. Jesus even called himself, I am a friend of sinners. And the Pharisees questioned, who is this man that would sit amongst tax collectors and sinners? Because what Jesus was offering was revolutionary. He was offering forgiveness and love of God to everyone. It was revolutionary, but to the Pharisees and to the Sadducees, it was heresy. And so God is going to respond, or Jesus is going to respond, not by answering the man's question, but by getting to his heart. And the way he gets to his heart is through telling this parable. Starting again in verse 29, when the man asks, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Here's two men who were set aside from birth as a part of the tribe of Levi. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob, and the Levites were men who were set aside to either be priests or to be supporters of the priests. Their whole job was to shepherd the Jewish people. And this man who was going down and had been beaten, was most likely a Jew. One, we can know that because he was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, so we can make an assumption that perhaps he was there to worship. But most importantly, the reason why we believe that he was a Jew was because of what Jesus was responding to. He was responding to the heart of the man who was saying, almost accusing God, accusing Jesus, of loving sinners and being around those people who would not be included in the law. And so it wouldn't make sense if the priest and the Levite were just passing by maybe another Samaritan or any other person. So we can assume that it was a Jew. And then who do we see that stops? Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he travels, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense. First of all, the Samaritan. Who is a Samaritan? A Samaritan is not just a person who is from Samaria. A Samaritan is considered a half-breed, half-Jew, half-native to Samaria. Remember throughout the Old Testament when, Jesus, when God would tell the Jewish people to go into a land but not to intermarry, not to take on a relationship and a marriage with people who have other gods 
so that they would not distort their own view of who God is? Well, the Jewish people again and again disobeyed and did this themselves. Well, part of that was when with the Samaritans. And so you have a group of people who worship God, who claim the same heritage of Jacob, but they don't adhere to the same ordinances of worship. They, some of them still include other gods. They don't practice the same cleanliness. They don't see Jerusalem as being the city of worship. So the animosity between the two, the Jew and the Samaritan, is hatred at its very core. So now not only did the Samaritan stop to help, but I love where it says, and the next day he gave him two coins and then went on his way. He didn't just give up his time and say, oh, are you okay? But he he bandaged him up, he took him to the inn, and he stayed with him through the night. And didn't just give money then to take care of him, for the innkeeper to take care of him, but he made a commitment to come back. His relationship and his self-sacrifice was beyond just even in the moment, but it was a commitment to follow through. To the crowd that Jesus was speaking, what the Samaritan did would have been crazy. They would have scoffed at that, thinking there's no way a Samaritan could have done that. When we love our enemies, when we love and care for the person who has done us wrong, the world scoffs. It is crazy to the world. And yet that's still what God calls us to do. So why? Why? Why do we love our neighbors? Why do we do it? The number one reason is because God tells us to. It's very clear in his word. He said the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. God tells us we should do it. The second reason is that it helps us understand God's love for us. We were enemies of God. There was not anything before we came to Christ. There was not anything in us that was re- that was pleasant, that was attractive, that was good. And God still chose to have a relationship with us. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we love others, it helps us understand the depths of how God loves us. Number three, it brings praise to God. When we do anything that God asks us to do and obey, it brings him glory. It brings him praise. Number four, we love our neighbor because it shows others that we are a follower of Christ. John 13, verse 34 and 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So when we love others, when we love our neighbor, we're showing the world that we're different. We're showing the world that the God who loves us, when we were still sinners, we in turn can love others, despite what they've done for us or who they are. And perhaps God would use that to bring somebody to himself. So then why did the Samaritan man stop and help the beaten man? Why did he stop along the side of the road? 
Let's look at the, um, verse 36 and 37. Jesus turns the question back around onto the lawyer and says, Which of these men do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. So you remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees adhered to the letter of the law, not the intent behind the law. See, God gave us the law so that we would know that we can't live up to it. There's not anything that we can do in order to be pleasing to God of our own. And the law needed to have grace and a Savior. And that's what Jesus brought, but that's not what the Pharisees and the Sadducees saw. Because they wanted to just do, like, almost like checking off a list. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and there's no room for the interpretation for the heart behind the law. Hosea 6.6, 6, which Hosea is a prophet, and so this is God speaking through the prophet Hosea, says, I for, uh, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, an acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. He wants our heart. Yes, God wants our love and our devotion, but he wants our heart. He wants there to be a pure heart with which we serve him. Because without mercy, the things that we may be doing for others are meaningless. Without a heart that is submissive to the Lord, that is loving God with all of our everything, what we're doing for God might even be offensive. Because it's empty. Remember, Jesus even called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He said on the outside, they were doing all the right things. But on the inside, their heart was dead, just like a tomb. So when we consider who is my neighbor and how do we love our neighbor, we have to look at the fact that it's not about who I love. It's not about whether or not I am going and, and working at the homeless shelter five nights of the week, or whether I am sacrificing and dropping everything that I'm doing in order to sit with a friend. It's not about whether I'm serving in Sunday school class. It's about how I'm loving my neighbor. You know, what's interesting is that there have been um, many good Samaritan experiments that have been done throughout the secular world. Probably the most famous um, Harvard University back in the late 70s, early 80s, did this Good Samaritan experiment. And at the beginning of this summer, I just happened to be watching one of those nighttime, um, you know, like those news magazine shows that they do. I think it was on NBC. And the whole thing was that they were recreating this Good Samaritan experiment. And so what they do is they gather people that have been nominated or they found out through their everyday life, people who are compassionate towards others. And they tell them, we want to give you this Good Samaritan Award. And so what they do is they have them come to this office one by one. There's about 10 or 12 people that they were giving this award to. And they had them come to this office and prep them for the television interview that they're going to do. They said, this is what people have said about you. This is why we're giving you this Good Samaritan Award. They even read Luke 10, what we just read so that they can be reminded of why it's called a Good Samaritan Award. And then they give the people that have, are going to receive this award a map that will take them to their second office, which is where they're going to do the television interview. Well, the map takes them along a park 
And along the path in the park, they've set up an actor. His clothes are torn, and he's bloodied, and he's laying down on the side of the road, and he's calling for help. They couldn't have set it up more perfectly, right? And they've got a hidden camera to see how the people are going to respond. People who have just been reminded about why they are receiving this award and reminded about what it means to be a good Samaritan. And so, what do you think? Half the people stop, half the people don't stop. The people who don't stop are the ones who say that they felt rushed because they wanted to make it to the interview on time. And I thought, I can relate to that. My schedule gets pretty busy, and I think, but I'm going to go and serve God here, and I'm going to do what he wants me to do here, and that's important, and I need to get there because somebody else can take care of this. The other people who did not stop, some of them even pulled out their cell phone to pretend like they were talking to somebody so they didn't even have to make eye contact with the man on the side of the road, and I thought, well, I can relate to that too. I'm, um, there are plenty of times where I just don't want to get involved. I just don't want to take the next step and to follow through. It's one thing if I could just say, how are you doing, but to have to follow through. Sometimes I'm just selfish, and I don't want to do that. Some of the people who didn't stop said that they were scared, that they were scared for their life, especially the women, although some men also said that they were scared. And I can relate to that as well. There are times where I feel like I don't want to reach out to this person because it makes me uncomfortable, and I don't know what's going to happen to me. And I'm not saying to throw out wisdom that God gives you, but God is bigger than any of those things. And the thing is, the people who did stop, what they did was they just said, are you okay? Can I call anybody for you? Let me call 911 for you and get some help for you. Not one of them took them in their own car. Not one of them did anything to put themselves at danger. They just simply took the time to say, are you okay? Remember back to the order of the relationship that God gave us. First, we're to love God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. And second, we're to love our neighbor as ourself. If we're loving God with everything, then it's going to change how we see our neighbor. It's going to change how we love our neighbor. If we remember that he loved us when we were yet sinners, when we had nothing that we had given him, nothing that could possibly have been done for him, and we remember that we are to love our neighbors we've been loved, it's going to transform us. Not because we're better, not because we're more holy, not for any other reason than the love of God transforms us. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The pattern of this world is pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You got yourself into that situation, you can get yourself out of that situation. Well, if they wouldn't just keep making that same poor choice over and over again, they wouldn't be there in the first place. But that's not what God says. That's not what he did with us. He didn't expect us to do that on our own. And that's not what he tells us in his word. He tells us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. He tells us to be, to give food to those that are hungry and to give 
drink to those that are thirsty. He tells us to take time to visit those that are sick and that are in prison. Now, you can take every single one of those things literally, and I think we should. I think we need to consider what God is wanting us to do. But you also can take them figuratively and say, is my neighbor thirsty and hungry for the word of God? And I'm not willing to engage in a relationship with them because that might mean when I drive home, I can't close the garage right behind me. I might have to engage and be involved in somebody else's life. That's what Jesus' whole ministry was, was in the context of relationships. We get to see all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Gospels, where he was a friend to others. And he even said, I'm being your example. When he washed the disciples' feet, he said, I am being an example for this. God's love transforms us. So how is your heart? If it's all about our heart and what it is, how is your heart? Is your heart submitting to what God would have for you? It's not about, well, how do I take care of my family at the same time when I'm supposed to be loving all these other people? Because if we're loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our everything, then we're going to be in step with the Spirit, and He's going to tell us, and he's going to show us what we need to do. A couple of months ago, I think it was sometime in the summer, Ted was speaking or te- um, preaching through the core values on one Sunday morning. And the final core value that he listed was loving relationships in which we shower one another with grace. And that's taken from Romans 5, 7, 15, 7, excuse me. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. It goes back again into how we are loved by God, we love one another. And it's not just within our family, it's not just within our church. At Christ Chapel, another one of the things that we believe and we want to be is a church without walls. Not just to love our church, but to love all of Fort Worth. Anybody that God brings into our path. And finally, Luke 10.37, the last words that Jesus said, go and do likewise. The expert in law had replied, the one who had mercy on him is the one who is truly the neighbor. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Don't you wonder if he did? I always wonder what happens to these people that we see the little snippets of their life. And when I get to heaven, I want to look for this man because I want to know if his eyes were opened on that day And his life was transformed by the love and acceptance that Jesus offered him. Because he didn't, Jesus didn't condemn him. He knew his heart. He allowed this man to understand for his own that it's mercy that God desires in our love for one another. And so we have to receive that same thing. Go and do likewise. How do we do that? How do we go and do likewise? Number one, we pursue God first. Above and beyond everything else, pursue God first. Spend time with him. Seek him. Read his word. Get to know him. Get to know him in every aspect of your life. Pray. Communicate with God. Talk about God and what he's doing in your life with your friends. 
with the other women that are here at Bible study, with your family. Talk about what God's doing because that's going to help you understand his love for you and it's going to help you seek him and love him with all of your heart. Deuteronomy, I put on there the, the verses after Deuteronomy 6, 5. It starts with, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Then it says, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the roads, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Doesn't leave a whole lot of room not to talk about it, does it? Every aspect of our life, and that's how we're to love God. From the beginning of the day, as we walk through the day, until we go to bed that night. Secondly, how do we go and do likewise? Sacrificially serve those that God brings into your life. Those that God brings into your life. That Samaritan didn't wake up that morning and said, Today I'm going to serve a Jew. No. And we may have good plans for our day. We may be doing things that we believe are very honoring to God. And that may be exactly what God's asking you to do that day. But how loosely are you holding on to your agenda? When you get up in the morning and you have your to-do list of everything that you want to do, how loosely do you hold on to that? So that whatever you're doing along the day, if somebody is in need, do you stop? Are you willing to sacrifice your time and the important things that you're doing in order to love your neighbor? I think that, again, we can, we can look at this and feel like a guilt trip. But remember, it's not about what we're doing. It's about how we're loving God. And are we willing to just show up and one of the things that I hear my husband say more than anything is being used by God is just about showing up, being available. And then when he presents a situation in front of you, do you take advantage of it? Proverbs 16.9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. So how about you? Who in your life do you need to show mercy to? Who in your life, as you've done this homework, have you sat in your small group, as you're sitting here listening this morning, is there someone in your life that you're not showing mercy to that God is asking you to do? Is there something in your life that you are holding on to so tightly in your day and your agenda and the way that you spend your time that you're not even available for what God might bring into your path? God doesn't tell us, go do this, go do this, go do this, go do this. But God tells us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul. And he tells us to love our neighbor like ourself. He tells us to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. And he tells us to go and do likewise. Let me pray. God, you are an awesome God. Thank you for loving us, even when we don't deserve it. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die in our place and take the punishment for our sins. Father, let that love transform us, that we would be changed women as a result of what you've done for us 
Help us to seek you and to love you with all of our heart, with all of our everything, and allow that to change how we love our neighbor. Father, I pray that we would not get caught up in checking off boxes in our lives in order to please you or to impress somebody next to us. But, Father, that it would be about our heart and that we would be willing to show mercy to whomever you bring in our life. We love you, Lord. Give us the strength to do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen.